<laughs> well, that was fun. want to welcome you uh, to the first uh, monthly happy hour with Pastor Dale. I see that uh, most of you were able to get a little appetizer, so that's good. I um, want to welcome those of you who are watching on our live stream, and we are just thrilled to have you here. Um, and I want to thank you for um, joining us um, you know, live now or maybe sometime uh, in the coming week or weeks or months uh, as you will be watching. So uh, thank you for being here. I wanted to start um, by just saying a word about Lighthouse Church, and then we are going to just uh, jump right in. So um, I'm pastor of Lighthouse Church. We are a, a church that has a recovery basis to its ministry, and we are in downtown Fargo. And um, we are a church where lots of people come with various kinds of hurts, hang-ups, and habits going on in their life. And uh, we have really kind of developed a niche and a ministry of reaching out to those who might be hurting. Generally, my experience is that people come to Lighthouse Church uh, usually for a reason. And um, we always want people to know when they come to Lighthouse that uh, you are in a, in a come-as-you-are place where uh, everyone is welcome. And if you are going through something right now, uh, we want you to know that uh, there are people in this church and in this uh, Lighthouse community who understand what you're going through because they've been through it themselves. And this is a safe place to come and be honest and transparent about what's going on in your life, uh, but also to grow and to experience hope. So I, I kind of want to make sure that everybody knows uh, that the happy hour has a tagline uh, that we are going to be tackling tough topics but with uplifting love and grace. It's been a vision of mine for some time that we would offer this kind of a resource not only for our own church community and those who might be interested but to whoever wants to tune in and watch. And so we hope to really develop this um, on a monthly basis with different topics. And I want to introduce you all uh, to a friend of mine, somebody who I have known for um, more years than I'd like to count, um, Dr. Julie Blam. And uh, we're going to call her Julie. Mm -hmm. And uh, Julie and I have known each other uh, for many years. Uh, Julie was uh, a member, still is a member of my former church. And um, she uh, has been somebody who um, I have interacted in a variety of ways over the years, including uh, when I was uh, first starting my own recovery journey. Uh, Julie was somebody who was helpful for me, uh, particularly in regards to some of the depression and mental health issues I was dealing with. And I know that she was helpful to my wife, Beth. Uh, in some of the uh, codependent and, and, you know, kind of supportive uh, ways that somebody can be to a spouse of someone who's dealing with an alcoholic in the house. And so um, we are so grateful to have you here. And um, as soon as we envisioned this happy hour uh, time, um, I knew that Julie was going to be the first guest that I wanted to invite. So thank you for coming. I told you very little about yourself. Why don't you tell us a little bit more? Well, the first thing I want to tell you is what Dale said the first time I met him at the meeting about joining the church, and it was David and I, my husband, and uh, Kirk and Stephanie, and you made a, cop, a comment about the older couples in the room, <laughs> and that was us. I don't remember that. 
<laughs> now I'm one of the older couples, yeah. <laughs> right. And in fairness, we were the older couples compared to everyone else yes. that was in the room. Yeah. <laughs> so Julie, tell us, what, you, you're a physician, um, retired kind of. Tell kind us of. a little bit about yourself. <laughs> I'm an internal medicine physician and I started practice at the end of 1984, so it's been a long time. I now just work per diem, so not a lot. Um, I am a mother of two children. I have a son and a daughter, and my daughter is intellectually disabled. And I met my husband, David, in medical school. I had not known him prior to that. And we'd actually both been out of school for a period of time, myself three years, David for four years. So we kind of connected because we were slightly older than average medical students. And um, as Dale said, I was a member of the church that he was serving at that time. And I continued to go to that church. And I am a person of faith. I have a strong belief. Yeah, we're going to come back to that towards the end. Mm -hmm. so, um, so probably 15 to 20 years ago, um, you would not have been the first person that I would have contacted to come and talk about suicide. But um, Julie not only has um, learned um, a lot about suicide prevention and suicide survivor support, um, but has a personal story to tell. So uh, we're going to have her tell that story. That's part of why we wanted her to come. Um, Julie, um, as she mentioned, was married to David. Um, and so I knew David well. We have a, a couple of pictures of David. Here's a picture of David and Julie. Um, that Julie sent us and a picture, a professional picture of David um, up on the screen. And um, David was actually my, my kid's pediatrician. And so um, we knew him from a variety of plays. So can you tell us the story? Let's start yes. there. So David, um, about three years before he died, started having a struggle with alcohol. And I would mention something to him, and he'd drink less for a period of time. And then he'd start drinking more, and I, I knew we were in trouble when I said to him one night, you know, I think you're drinking a little more again. You had really cut back, and it seemed to be okay. And he goes, oh, you are just so uptight about drinking. And I thought... Oh, I think I've lost this battle. Mm. And um, he was always a person who told me he would, could take care of it. He could quit himself. And he was not a person who drank with other people. He would come home at night, never drank at work, thank heavens, and um, would come home, sit in a chair, and drink all night till I wasn't even really worth talking to him anymore. And I was always, I have to say, shocked at how he could get up in the morning and seem to be just fine and go to work. He, it became extremely difficult for me to watch him slide downhill. David, I fell in love with David because he was the most interesting person I'd ever met. 
He was a voracious reader. He had so many different interests. If he became interested in something, it would almost become a bit of an obsession. He'd research it, do everything. He was, had a lot of varying interests, loved to hunt and fish, but just as much loved symphony and opera and mm. physics books, which, frankly, I never liked <laughs> physics books. And he was, always a great, he was also a great cook, and I was a marginal cook at best. So watching him just kind of disappear was how it felt to me. This person that I had fallen in love with and been with for at least 28 years at that point, I just thought, I don't know what to do. And I'd bring up that he could, maybe you should get some help, maybe you should talk to someone who has the same struggle. And his response was always, I can take care of it myself. A good friend of us actually called me one weekend and said, don't be home, because I am flying out there to surprise David and talk to him about this problem. And his friend Jack had been through treatment and was in recovery. So things got better for about eight months, and then it just was downhill. And I have to admit, I was at a point where I really, I didn't know what to do. And I left for a meeting in Denver on a Friday. And I talked to him that night when I got there, and he sounded great. And I thought, oh, good, good. And then I talked to him Saturday, and he had clearly been drinking again. But this was not unusual at this point, so I didn't think much about it. On Monday morning, I didn't call him Sunday because he was supposedly hunting with a friend. On Monday morning, I get a call from one of his co-workers who said, David isn't here. He never is late, and he's always at work. And so she said, should I go over and check on him? She knew where we lived. And I said, no, 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 I think I'll have my sister and her husband because, of course, what was going through my mind was, was he unconscious? Was he still drunk? Had he fallen somewhere? And I knew he would be so embarrassed if she found him. So about 30 minutes later, I got a call from my sister Mary, and she said to me, I don't know how to tell you this. He's dead. He killed himself. And my, well, at first I said, are you sure? Are you sure he's dead? And then my second question was, are you sure he killed himself? And she said, Julie, there is no doubt he did. And so about 30 minutes later, I hung up the phone, called my brother-in-law. My brother-in-law's sister-in-law lived in Denver and said, I'm not really sure. I don't know what to do. I have to get home. And I called um, someone who worked with me who got my airline flight switched. But about 30 minutes after that call, the police called me and they said to me, do you know that your husband had a DUI Sunday morning? And I said, no, I, I didn't know that. And so they really didn't know 
if he died Sunday or Monday. But I'm pretty certain that he went home from his arrest, posted bail or whatever it is you post, and um, decided he probably couldn't live with the shame he felt because he always told his kids, be careful about drinking, and even more importantly, don't ever drink and drive. Hmm. So it was a very, uh, it was a very difficult trip home for me, um, especially since I'm standing at the airline counter to get my new ticket, and my phone rings, and it says David Blem. And I'm like, I mean, my first thought was, oh, maybe it was a mistake. And then I thought, no, 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 it wouldn't be a mistake. And I later found out they were putting all the evidence, his phone, all the stuff in his pockets, in the evidence bag. And it must have, mm-hmm. you know, just mm-hmm. automatic, you know, the pocket dialing. <clears throat> but um, so that... That is how it happened. It was very hard for all of us, my kids and myself. And I have to say, as all of you who've had things you'd never thought would happen to you, happen to you, I was just, I I mean, stunned. And then it didn't help that the next, I got home Monday, that the next day in the paper, there's this big headline about, I don't remember the words, but saying that local pediatrician killed himself, essentially. And yeah. I was like, oh my gosh. Hmm. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was very public. Um, I remember yeah. talking to you the day that you yeah. found out and um, meeting you at your house mm-hmm. um, when you first got home. Um, and, uh, you know, I just, I'd never... Um, I'd never really experienced that much with people um, having to walk through something like that, and and uh, you know I was I was struck by how strong you were, um, but I'm sure just from my experience in working with people, especially in my lighthouse time, um, the strong is the exter- exterior mm-hmm. stuff on the inside. It's just painful, and it's like your life is falling apart. Mm-hmm. So my experience um, with with suicide is that um, for people who actually commit suicide, there's often not a lot of like clues or or indications. I mean, there's always that hindsight 2020. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe I should have seen this or that. But was there anything like that? And how have you thought that that aspect of this whole thing through? Well, I think, because I have thought about it a lot, I think one thing that happens, whether it's suicide or an addiction, you always wonder, what could I have done differently? How, where is my fault in this? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's always those questions. And um, there was no note. And um, I don't know if I thought that was good or bad, in all honesty. Mm-hmm. But I do think a lot of suicides are impulsive. We know that not every one of them is planned out with notes and all the information about the will and stuff laid out. And I actually think with him, 
it was impulsive. His blood alcohol level, you know, they do an autopsy and everything afterwards, was very high. And I think, I think he was frankly drunk and not thinking clearly at all. And I think he just felt the shame so much because I know David would have been so ashamed that he'd allowed all of this to happen. We talk about shame quite a bit at mm -hmm. Lighthouse and the power of shame in our life, and it keeps us sick mm -hmm. and it does. can even be that destructive. Um, I'm, I'm curious if there's any, I hadn't told you I'd ask this, but do, do you know, are there statistics about the percentage of, of um, successful suicides that are done under the influence of a substance? Do you know if there's any information about that? There is information. I do not know the exact number, but it's over, I know it's over 50% sure, of suicides have alcohol involved or drugs of some kind. Yeah. So um, at Lighthouse Church, um, we deal a lot with mental health issues. And um, I would say that um, most, most people who come to Lighthouse Church have had at least depression or anxiety, not to minimize those, but, but they are certainly kind of um, a pretty common thing in our family here. Um, and I'm wondering um, if you have any advice um, for people who are, you know, um, have loved ones, family members who might be struggling with severe depression or, or mental health issues, you know. Um, what is somebody supposed to do? What, what kind of advice now from you know, your experience with what you've gone through in your work since, what would you suggest or any indications you can give us? Well, I think one of the most important things is supporting them. And that doesn't mean supporting them in maybe the negative way they're doing things, but supporting them and asking how they are. Asking, can you help? Is there anything we can do? And I think one thing we've learned with suicide um, is if you think someone's struggling, whether it's addiction or depression or anxiety, bringing it up and asking them if they're okay or are you going to harm yourself does not cause them to think about suicide. Hmm. Or that's that's any helpful. Other say, that, say that again. So if you are worried about someone and you say to them, do you feel like hurting yourself or are you worried about harming yourself? There seems to be this myth that that might encourage them to kill themselves. But that is absolutely wrong. The studies show that those kind of questions often will allow someone to say to you, I really, yes, I am thinking about that. I think I need help and I don't know what to do. Mm. And we teach that. Um, I'm working with a psychiatrist and we talk to physicians, residents, medical students. And we talk about if you think someone's struggling, ask them. How are you feeling? And then listen to the answer. Don't let them get away with fine, which we all love to say when people ask us. Mm -hmm. But make certain to 
really encourage an answer. I happened to have gone through a period of, of rather severe depression when I, when we had my daughter tested. We knew she was intellectually disabled, but she had to be tested for school. And I remember thinking after getting the results, I'm going to go home and I'm not going to work today. But I thought, if I do that, I will crawl under the bed and I will never come out again. Hmm. So I went to work, but I became quite depressed. And I really thought I was hiding this very well, that I was acting normally, t until one of my partners, when we were in Minot at the time, asked to talk to me one day and said to me, Julie, are you okay? You are not acting right anymore. Mm. You're irrita easily irritated. You're not smiling anymore. You're short with us. And that was what I needed, someone mm. to say they'd noticed. And I got some help. And four months later, I remember driving to work and thinking what a beautiful day it was. And I hadn't thought that for six months. Hmm. So I think that is a critical thing to ask how they're doing, offer help, you know, maybe go with them to seek help or find someone. You can't fix it for them. We all know that. Only we can fix our own issues. But it's an illness like a physical illness. Mental illness is just like diabetes or blood pressure or heart disease. We all need help in dealing with them. And often advice and just somebody, we know somebody's there with us, standing by us, will make a huge difference. One of the things that comes to my mind um, as you talk about that is, is um, I have learned that um, that the percentage of people who deal with a drug or alcohol addiction who have a mental health issue is very high. Mm -hmm. I would guess that um, the statistic probably is fairly high the other way as well because there's a temptation to relieve yourself mm -hmm. of that. And, and I, I remember myself, um, I remember um, when I was getting into recovery and starting to deal with some of the depression that I had, having that same feeling like, the sun is shining today, you know, and beginning to recognize some of the things that perhaps um, I was blind to for a mm -hmm. long period of mm -hmm. time. So thank you for mentioning that. Um, that's, a, that's a pretty um, significant thing. So what advice do you have for somebody who might be watching right now, somebody who's here, who's really struggling with, you know, some, let's not say suicidal ideation, but maybe just really overwhelming mental health issues? I mean, what should they do? What kind of hope can you give them? Well, I think it's important to seek help, to admit I need help. And that, to me, is probably the hardest thing to admit to for most of us. I need help. And seek out a counselor, a pastor, you know, psychiatrist, psychologist, whoever you think you can really talk to. Because often with someone else listening to you, they may not even need to say a lot. You just are working through it with someone who you know is paying attention. And to me, 
I get very frustrated because there's such stigma around mental illness and addiction and suicide. And there shouldn't be. It's really no different than any physical illness we have. And we now do have help for these things. Yeah. If you want a place where um, there is very little stigma around addiction and mental health issues, come to Lighthouse. And <laughs> you'll feel very welcome. Yeah, it's kind of... Um, I sometimes um, go outside of uh, our community here and I visit with people who talk about stigma and I think, really, there's a stigma? But So I realize... <laughs> how ingrained I have become in, in uh, what is pretty common language um, in this place. So tell us about the work that you have done um, since uh, David's um, deaths, because um, one of the most remarkable things that I have learned um, over time uh, is that God is able to make beauty out of ashes, that God is able to you know, make um, wonderful um, things by you know out of those experiences that are very painful, mm-hmm. and you have done a lot um, to um, help others and to learn as much as you can and share as much as you can about about suicide, but also I think growingly about addiction and some mm-hmm. of those issues. So just talk about what you've been doing since, and uh, there are some resources out in the entryway too. By the way, we want mm-hmm. to make sure you know about. Well, um, about nine months after David killed himself, I decided at the recommendation of a friend that I should go to a support group. And I frankly am not a huge support group fan. (laughs) And so I went to... That's kind of like swearing around here, but that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) I went (laughs) to an American Foundation for the Prevention of Suicide support group for... Law, for suicide loss survivors. And um, it was amazingly more helpful than I could have imagined, in part because in, it was people who'd all, was, all lost a loved one or a good friend to suicide. And what you could say there was what I didn't really dare say to most people the anger I felt, how could he have done this to us? The grief and the loss I felt, I was like, where are you? I need help. And the frustration, and then also the relief that I didn't have to come home and see him sitting drunk in his chair every night. And I felt so guilty about that. But whether it's you lose someone because of an illness and you've been taking care of them, there's a relief that it's over, but there's also so much loss. So that, um, after that, I became active in the American Foundation for the Prevention of Suicide. So I'm now on the board, and I'm a real believer in the organization because they look at preventing suicide, but also helping those who are lost survivors. And um, I mentioned the work I do every year. We go to the medical students, the residents, the physicians. We go around the state, actually, and do our presentation on depression, mental illness in general, addiction, and suicide in the medical community. And we've now started including nurses because 
the statistics are minimal in nursing, but there is a huge issue with mental illness and suicide in the nursing community also. And mm. especially since COVID, it's really mm. become big. Mm. I also, um, we are now starting a program, our North Dakota chapter got a grant from Behavioral Health in North Dakota to do safe side training around the state for primary care physicians. And what safe side training is, is helping primary care physicians who struggle with how do you address suicide, what do you do if someone is struggling like that and you can't get them into a psychiatrist right away, which we all know is not easy. And so it's teaching them the questions to ask and the ability to develop a safety plan for people till they can get to the next step in the help they need. So I've been very active in that. Um, and then I've really, you know, tried to, uh, when people ask if, I, uh, when April from the farm asked if I'd, do when they were doing the series on mental health. I try to be open about that. And I have to admit, at the beginning, that was not very easy for me because I kept thinking, David wouldn't like it that I was mm. saying he was an alcoholic. Mm. But then I thought, well, he's not here. First of all, he's not mm -hmm. going to know I'm saying it. <laughs> Second of all, he would not want that to happen to anyone else. I know that. But it was, you know, the stigma was there inside me a little bit. It was quite a while before you talked about yeah. his alcoholism with, yeah. with people I know. Yeah, yeah. it took me a while. Yeah. So um, we're going to have question and answer in just a, a minute or two here. Um, wondering if uh, there's any final things that you want to share. Um, um, I'm curious about how, you, how your faith helped you through this time. So any... Any kind of words that you want to share with people before we do a few questions? Well, there was an article by a theologian that um, someone who knew David was on a med school committee with him, sent to me after he died. Hmm. And it made a huge difference to me. And um, first of all, there is always light at the end of the tunnel. There is always hope for all of us. But this Walter Wangerin said, there are two separate griefs with suicide. First, the grief which caused the suicide, so the person who died, his grief or her grief, and second, the grief caused by the suicide. And he talks about God does not turn away from the one who dies in the midst of his sinning. But before God, there was never a sharper cry of craving than this, or a more dramatic motive for faith. He who has cried, I can't, with such tremendous failure, might better than others hear the Lord Jesus murmur, but I can. Hmm. And yeah. that was incredibly helpful to me to think, God was there with him yeah. at the end, as God is always with us, but we don't always seem to know it. Yeah. Um, can I just, that's, I mean, that's beautiful. And 
Um, I, I, had, I don't think I've told you that um, we had um, just a week and a half ago a, a, a funeral service here, a memorial mm -hmm. service for a young man um, who had been coming to church, part of the, um, one of the recovery communities who took his own life at age 34. And uh, twice just in the last month or so, um, I have been asked by people um, if they'll go to hell if they um, mm. uh, take their own life. Um, wanting to know genuinely what will happen. And, um, you know, I've, I've shared with them. First of all, I've shared with them because one of them was a text. And I said, I won't answer that over a text, but I'll be happy to get together. Um, but, um, you know, I've, I've tried to share with people that I know. I, I mean, suicide is not the unforgivable sin. The Bible talks about what the unforgivable sin is. It is not the unforgivable sin. And, um, and yet, um, I think the Bible is clear that, that um, life is a gift from God and that um, it's God's to give and God's to take. And, um, and so there's help available. Um, it's not just help from doctors and psychologists and counselors and support groups, which we think are a good thing. And, <laughs> and um, you know, church communities... Um, but most of all, there is help from a God who loves us and is especially close to us in the midst of our struggles. Mm -hmm. And so anybody watching, anybody here listening, I want you to hear that, that if you're in the midst of that, God is close, closer than you think, and wants to walk through you, this with you. So should we do some questions? Is mm -hmm. that all right? Yeah. All right. Um, so this is going to be an opportunity if anybody has a question they'd like to ask to Julie, a uh, brief comment on, on it. And um, we're going to try to, uh, um, you know, just to run a microphone. Um, if you are watching online and you have a question, you're able to write it in the chat box and Jacob will uh, share that question as well. So uh, Jeremy's going to run the mic. If anybody would like to ask a question or just say a word, um, this is the opportunity. So go ahead. Let's stand up, I think. That would be nice. Thank you. <laughs> Tell Julie who you are. I think I still love <laughs> Hi, Julie. I'm Bruce Feldy, and uh, I'm more used to seeing you in a bathing suit. <laughs> than... Yeah, I, I run around in a bathing suit quite a bit. <laughs> no, she doesn't. <laughs> uh, a question. I have had two instances in my own family where I was called to come and visit two members of my family who uh, at the time were struggling and uh, I had a good idea one was. The other one I was not uh, aware of because we don't live in the same town. But I answered the call of uh, the daughter of one who said, I think my dad's got some problems. So I flew out to visit her father, who happened to be my brother, and I sat down with him, and I could tell when I sat down by his body language and his happiness to see me uh, that there was something going on. And I'm not... I'm not good at this. I, you know, I suffer from it myself. But I, in both instances, in both with both members of my family, 
Not knowing what else to say to them, I threatened them. Hmm. And I said, you, you uh, after I listened to them for a time, I said, uh, you're not going to do anything stupid. Hmm. And they asked, like what? Like harm yourself. <laughs> because I guarantee you, if you do, I'll kill you. <laughs> and uh, I can't help it. I, I, I have a sense of humor. But I said that to both of them, that I would physically harm them, that, that nothing was worth what they were considering. I, I didn't know what else to say. And neither one of them acted, uh, thank God. Good. Because I love them both. Uh, one is dead, but he's dead because he is his turn to die. Mm -hmm. So uh, I don't know if, if I, because I have a feeling I'm going to be uh, back at this again. Because hmm. what I'm hearing from you and my own experience is it doesn't go away. So. Was I even close? Because I don't want to do that again if, if threatening bodily harm or death isn't the way to go about this. I'd like a better approach. Thank you, Bruce. Mm -hmm. Julie? Well, I'm not an expert, but I would say it might be better to have said, what can I do to help? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't, you know, and when it's somebody you know well, I think whatever you say is going to be okay. You may know what will work for them, what will break the tension. But I think the most important thing is that you flew out there, that you were there, and you came to listen, even if you did threaten them. <laughs> I think that's the most important thing. It showed them you cared. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, sorry, I don't need to get that close. So I'm Ashley, and uh, I'm part of the Lighthouse family, and I'm just curious. Well, uh, my curiosity is a few different things. I guess, how do you reconcile, because your academia and your scholarly mind with all of your personal, so I'm not sure how to phrase I'm not sure if you've read a book called An Unquiet Mind, but it is the experience of, see, I didn't want to get this wrong because I saw so many different parallels. She's a researcher and a professor of psychiatry at Johns Hopkins, and it's her memoir of dealing with um, bipolar. Mm -hmm. And she's, she's absolutely brilliant and fascinating and has all these letters behind her name. And I'm just curious if the if the, your husband had those same traits too, um, like did, did he ever have a diagnosis of that nature or, mm. or anything that, or maybe should he have been? Because um, in that era, yeah, I see you shake, yeah. So I'm just, I guess I'm looking for a, a more of an understanding of your experience, especially the piece of how to reconcile the academia versus yourself versus 
Thank you, Ashley. Yep, mm -hmm. thank you. I think um, he had been diagnosed with depression at one time and was treated and seemed to get a lot better. I personally think at the time he started drinking too much, she was self-treating depression. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think sometimes the academia or knowing things is sometimes gets in the way because I think he really thought, I can take care of it myself. I don't need any help. And I think we're trying to not teach that anymore in medical school because if you think there's stigma in the general public, you should see mm. the stigma among healthcare people about mental illness and addiction. So, and there's no doubt in my mind he was an alcoholic, but he would never see anyone, so it was hard to get the diagnosis. Mm. I think in the recovery world, it's pretty common mm -hmm. to realize that um, you can't think your way out of things, mm -hmm. and having done that your whole life tends to get in the way. Yes, yeah. I agree. So thank you. That was a very good question. Mm -hmm. uh, anybody else? All right, we've got somebody on uh, live stream, I think. Yes, we do have one question from Kathy on Facebook wondering, heaven is supposed to be so wonderful and all pain is gone from mental health and addiction. How would you explain to someone that suicide is not okay? Because, for instance, it, could, it sounds a lot better than being on earth than suffering. Yeah. Thank you, Kathy. Yes, thank you. That is <clears throat> difficult. I... I have read a lot about that after my husband killed himself. Yeah. And um, yes, I can, that's why most people end up, they cannot live with the pain anymore. Right. And the solution is to end their life so there won't be pain. But most people have a lot to live for. I mean, I'm not sure about someone on death row, but... Most of us do have a lot to live for. We have people we love, people we care about, um, places to go, places to see friends. Many of us have children or grandchildren. And so I think that's what, when people say that, you have to focus on. Do you... Would you really want to miss that? But I think even more importantly is offering, we can, there is help for your pain. Hmm. Because it's the pain that I think does people in. It is, yeah. Did you have a question too, Rod? We'll do one more question. I guess my question is, is with your husband, Julie, um, the triggering event of the DUI. Is that very common, um, that shame, that things that triggers the shame, and then mm -hmm. is it different for women versus men? Hmm. Hmm. That's a good question. Hmm. Um, as all the questions have been, actually, very thought-provoking questions. I think 
for him, and do I know that? I can't ask him. Mm-hmm. But knowing him, I think that just was like, I failed, I couldn't take care of it myself, and now I'm going to be shamed because I tell the kids I see um, not to, you know, drink and drive. But I do think in many cases there's something that just kind of puts people over the edge. And I think that's different for each person. I'm not sure you can say men and women are totally different. We do know that men take, tend to take more violent uh, direction in suicide than women. Mm. Women are more likely to use pills, for example. Men are more likely to shoot themselves. Mm. So there is a difference there. Women have less completed suicides. Men have a much higher incidence of completed suicides. So the difference, you know, there might be, but I do think sometimes, for many people, something that just I can't take anymore. So um, so we have two hands up, and we're going to finish with those then because um, we want to wrap up. So I'll go to Jacob, and then we'll do Jeff. So Jacob? All right, we got another question from Facebook. This is from Holly asking, My son heard from a parent of his good friend that his friend has been talking of dying. He has no idea how to approach this. Uh, do you have any recommendations for something like that, basically a friend of a friend and stuff Mm. like that. Well, I think what I said earlier, something as simple as, um, are you okay? You, I hear you're struggling. Is there anything I can do to help? I think just coming right Mm. out and even going as far as saying, I'm worried that you're thinking about harming yourself. What can we do to, to get you help? And that's really what is recommended now, to just address it. I think one of the things that is kind of generally known at Lighthouse is that if there's those kinds of concerns about somebody, that that kind of puts a lot of the confidentiality out the window. Mm-hmm. Not that we announce it or talk about it, but that we will approach somebody if there mm-hmm. is a concern about good their point. their good health point. or their well-being in that way. So mm-hmm. um, very, very good. So um, we're going to finish with Jeff, sorry, and then Julie's going to stay around afterwards if there are any other questions, right, for a few yes. minutes? Yep, all right. So Jeff right up here uh, has a question. I think we're going to have to wrap up there because we, we have some hopes of limiting the time a little bit here. Um, thanks, Julie, for coming to do this. Oh. Thanks, um, You know, it, it, it's something I didn't know. What you talked about is, you know, the DUI. And, you know, you talked about the stigma that comes with the medical community. And as I was sitting here, you know, twice a year, you know, I'll go through and, you know, look at my North Dakota license, Minnesota license. Mm-hmm. Have you been this? Have you been that? Have you been treated for depression? Have you this, this? You know, and I mean, you know, it used to be that there were n- no strikes. You just, boom, that was it. Yep. Can you address what's changed in terms of the medical boards and how that, um, 
there isn't the automatic assumption and conviction right. that goes with this stuff? Thanks. So both North Dakota and Minnesota have what's called a professional health program. And the states, the majority of states have that, and they're separate from the board. They may be funded by the license fees that come into the board, but they're separate. So if someone's struggling with anything that's affecting their practice or might affect their practice, they can go to the professional health program. And I know a lot about it in North Dakota because I'm the chairman of the board of it. I forgot to mention that. I've done that since then. And if you are working with the professional health program, they evaluate you and say you need some help for a mental illness, for addiction, whatever it is, and you're following the program, they don't do the evaluation. They have several programs that will evaluate and then send you go to that program or work with the doctor or whatever. Then when you fill out that license fee, you don't have to say that you have anything. And the other thing they've done in North Dakota is it, it used to be if you'd ever had a depression diagnosis mm. or ever had a problem that you had to market. But now, not only if you're working with the program, but they've limited it to five years. So if you were treated for addiction eight years ago and you've not had any problems since, you can check no or depression, or whatever. So I have to give the North Dakota Board of Medicine huge credit hmm. for changing those things so that you really never have to let anyone know as long as you haven't harmed a patient or aren't in trouble in your health system or whatever. And it's voluntary and totally confidential. Now... If you don't follow the treatment plan and you get into big trouble, well, then it has to go right to the Board of Medicine. So that's a really good point. That's been hugely helpful for our medical community. Yeah, thank you. Um, again, Julie will be um, here after, and I want to thank everybody. We probably could do this for a long time, but we're trying to kind of manage, especially the live stream opportunity to... Uh, share it with um, the greater world um, and, and the time that they might want to spend watching. So um, just want to say that uh, mark on your calendar the first Tuesday of every month. That's going to be our happy hour time. Thank you for coming. I'm going to close this with just a brief word of prayer. Father, we thank you for um, this day and the, the chance to be sharing with Julie. Lord, thank you for um, Julie's work. Thank you for blessing her and guiding her and working through her to bring um, hope to others and also, um, you know, just the, the sense of stability that perhaps she has provided, especially with those who, who have worked in the medical field uh, to, uh, to tackle some of these difficult issues. Lord, I pray that you would continue to use her and bless her. And uh, Lord, I pray for anybody anybody here or watching this live stream or the video coming up now uh, that anybody watching who might be struggling with mental health and help us lord to say i need some help i need to talk to somebody and help us to be responsive to those that we care about uh, lord we thank you for the gift of jesus the promises we have in his name for this church 
and for um, the fact that you are always with us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you, thank you.